This is Fordham Conversations. I'm Nora Flaherty. About this time last year, I was looking for a new apartment. Having just moved to New York the year before, I was facing, for the second time, the horror of finding and securing a place to live in New York City. I did eventually manage to find the studio apartment where I and my husband now live. It's a little small, but it works for us. For lots of New Yorkers, though, the story of finding a place to live doesn't necessarily have such a happy ending. They may, for example, end up paying more than half of what they earn in rent or having to double up with other people or other families to find a place they can afford. In the past, one of the things that people did do when they couldn't find an affordable place to live in Manhattan and later Brooklyn was to move to the Bronx. But increasingly, that's not the option it once was, as the Bronx becomes less and less affordable for poor and working-class New Yorkers. One area of the Bronx that's been one of the most affordable and decent places for people to live is the Northwest Bronx. That's the area that Fordham University calls home. It's just west of the Botanical Garden and the zoo, somewhat north of Yankee Stadium, and just south of Westchester County. And, according to the University Neighborhood Housing Program, or UNHP, it's getting more expensive all the time. UNHP is a nonprofit organization that's sponsored in part by Fordham University. Their goal is to create, preserve, and finance affordable housing for people in the neighborhood. Here to talk with me this week about the Northwest Bronx and about the rising housing prices that are affecting all of us in New York City is UNHP Deputy Director Gregory Lobo Jost. In a little while, we'll get to know the neighborhood a little better, and next week on the show, we'll get to know a different part of Bronx culture. But first, Gregory Lobo Jost, welcome. Thank you. Good to be here. So first off, tell me about the Northwest Bronx. What is the neighborhood like? The Northwest Bronx is actually one of the densest parts of the city, definitely one of the densest parts of the city outside of Manhattan. I guess the Grand Concourse is the most famous road in the Bronx, but also goes through the Northwest Bronx. It was kind of designed as the Champs-Élysées of New York City. Um, And for the working class folks living down in the Lower East Side, this was a place that you could move out of the old law tenement housing and come to the Bronx and live in these beautiful big apartments starting, I guess, mostly in the 1920s. Those buildings are still around today, and they're kind of the the basis of what the Northwest Bronx looks like. Um, Five-story walk-ups, six, seven-story elevator buildings, pretty nice housing stock. Uh, You've got a lot of homes mixed in, uh, one, two, three, four-family homes, that are in, you know, a variety of conditions. Some of them are in better condition than others. So a lot of the housing stock is older. Like the rest of the city, any vacant land is being developed at this point. Nothing's sitting around. People are building whatever they can build, whether it's three-family houses or, you know, apartment buildings. So that's kind of what it looks like in terms of the housing. In terms of the residents who live here, it's primarily, you know, working poor, working class New Yorkers. And this is uh, one of the things we've talked about at a a recent study we did talking about how the number of neighborhoods where kind of the working poor can afford to live in New York City is shrinking. And the Northwest Bronx is still one of those neighborhoods where they can afford. It hasn't fallen to any gentrification pressures yet. But still, you know, the rents are not so cheap that people can easily afford it. People here, because they make less money, are, are often paying half of their income on rent. That's kind of the norm around here. But the housing stock is is decent. It's, you know, as opposed to the South Bronx, where a lot of things were burned down or torn down, and there's a lot of newer houses and row houses that were built. Um, you know, that's not the norm up here. We've got the older housing stock, and a lot of it needs repairs. And that's kind of when 
you know, when, when a community group is able to, to take over a building, they're going to need a decent amount of money to kind of keep it up in, in good condition. What would people be surprised about in this area that if they were just thinking about, you know, the Bronx as the Bronx is burning Bronx? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a very vibrant community. There's, it's extremely diverse. I think Queens gets all the publicity in terms of being the really diverse part of New York City. Um, but we did some census research, and this was this is now going back seven years ago, the 2000 census. Uh, I think almost every single country on the census form is represented in the Northwest Bronx. And, you know, it's predominantly in terms of immigrants, the Dominican population, I think they're about half the immigrants. But other than the Dominicans, kind of more recently Mexican and other Central Americans, you've got pretty much every other country from all different parts of the world. There's a lot of South Asians, West Africans, Eastern Europeans that it's not quite as, I guess, the percentages are not quite as high as Queens. So we don't get any any press in terms of that. But it is really diverse. I guess the other thing that people might be surprised at is the percentage of people here that are working. Because one of the other stereotypes about the Bronx is that there are a lot of people on welfare. Or, but if you've if you've ridden the subways, gotten on the subways on either the D or the Four Line near, you know, near the university here in the Northwest Bronx, you see that they're packed from you know 5 a.m., 6 a.m., 7 a.m. People going to work. A lot of people working in you know all different types of areas but a lot of them are low-wage jobs a lot of people who work in the service industry live up here they're not making a ton of money but they are i think you know that's it's three quarters of the population up here is working which is pretty comparable to the rest of the city how do people in this part of the city compare to sort of the average new yorker well the i mean that's the main difference is about this part of the bronx um you know the in terms of immigration it's probably in line with the rest of the city a lot of immigrants. It's a lot of young people here, a lot of children. The percentage of population that's under age 18, I think, is is close to about 35%, while the city number is about 25%. So you've got, that leads to a whole bunch of other issues. You've got school overcrowding, and you've got, you know, you need more larger apartments, two and three bedroom apartments. And there is more overcrowding, I guess you, you could say, partly because of, you know, larger family size and lots of kids. And and then the other thing that is that folks are paying more of their income on rent, and you know they're not making as much money, but they've still got to pay the rent. So there's there's much less disposable income going around up here. So people are working; it's vibrant in that sense. But you don't have the same level of cash going around being spent in the neighborhood because people are spending most of their income on rent. And then when you add up all the other things they may have to spend money on, like health care and and such, it's so people are kind of scraping to get by, I think. What is the median income around here? Uh, it's depending on, you know, from one neighborhood to the other, it varies a little bit, but it's pretty much in kind of from the about low 20s up to mid 30s is, is the median income. And that compares to what for New York on the average? It depends who you ask because they have all the different data sources. It, I, I'd say it ranges. I've seen it. Some of the data shows in the, in the mid 40s, and I've seen things saying for the area, if you cl- include kind of some of the 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 nearby suburbs it's it's about 70,000. And just out of curiosity as somebody who lives on the upper east side, what are the rents like around here? And they've gone up a lot and I think, you know, this they're still cheaper than the rest of the city. And and people who are getting priced out of places in Brooklyn and northern Manhattan and Queens are coming up here. Um I know a whole bunch of people that have come up from East Harlem as the rents go up, but they're still you're still looking at 
you know, if you can find a two bedroom for a thousand dollars, you could you can definitely find it, but that's that's typical as opposed to being on the high end. I'd say it's you're you're looking at stuff between a thousand and twelve hundred dollars for a two bedroom apartment. You might find something for less, but it's it's if you're if you're making twenty five thousand dollars a year, that's a lot of money to spend on rent. And if you're a single parent with one or two kids, you need a two bedroom apartment. You're gonna that's that's half your income right there. You are listening to Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org. I'm Nora Flaherty. We're talking this week on the show with Gregory Lobo-Jost of the University Neighborhood Housing Program in the Northwest Bronx. In a little while, we'll take a walk up one of the area's main drags, Fordham Road. And next week on the show, we'll get to know the Bronx a little better with Natasha Lightfoot. She's part of a project that's exploring African-American life in the Bronx through oral history. But first, let's continue our conversation with Gregory Lobo-Jost. Now tell me what the University Neighborhood Housing Program is and what you do. We are a locally-based nonprofit organization that was actually started by Fordham University back in 1983. Back in the 1970s, the Northwest Bronx Community and Clergy Coalition had started organizing against things that were going on in the South Bronx, kind of the notorious problems of arson and abandonment that the South Bronx is still famous for today. And Fordham University, um, some of the folks here, there was uh, a priest, uh, Father Brandt, as well as some students who were involved, helped get the coalition started and worked with local clergy and community residents to organize residents against these kind of major devastating forces from heading north. And the coalition, I think they got started in 1974, as they kind of progressed and matured as an organization, they saw that they needed to take over some of the housing that was at risk of being abandoned or burned down. And so they were organizing to save the buildings, but they needed an entity that would be able to to own it and manage it and run it effectively as decent, affordable housing. And they started a number of neighborhood housing groups, some of which are still around today, like Ford and Bedford Housing Corporation and Mount Hope Housing Company kind of came up in the different neighborhoods, and they still own and manage housing to this day. In the 80s, mid-80s, the the coalition had a a community reinvestment project that was trying to get some more money into these buildings to help support the buildings that the community groups were owning now and get access to low-interest loan money that they could get pretty quickly and out on a a, smaller basis than, than an entire building renovation. And they were having trouble attracting investors for loan funds. So that was one of the reasons why, you know, the Bronx kind of had all the issues in the beginning were issues of redlining. The banks were not interested in making loans in areas like in the Bronx. And so the coalition came to Fordham and said, look, we we want your institutional support on this. And some of the folks that worked at Fordham who had actually previously worked at the at the Northwest Bronx Coalition said, look, we have this entity that exists on paper, this university neighborhood housing program. Why don't we turn this into something that could be really effective in getting some of the banks and foundations to invest in the Bronx? And so that's that was 1988. And so uh, university neighborhood housing program probably got its more official start in terms of what it is today in, in 1988 as a community loan fund. And with so with Fordham University's backing and the Northwest Bronx is kind of the other partner involved, they got started and were able to get a line of credit from Chase Manhattan Bank. And from that line of credit, they were able to start doing their first uh, 
kind of smaller loans out to buildings. Sometimes it would be to help one of the nonprofit groups buy a building. Another time it could be something as fixing a broken boiler, something that, you know, isn't the sexiest issue, but for the tenants living in the building in the winter, that's a, you know, it's a nice thing to have a working boiler when uh when the cold weather comes. Some of the other things it's been used for, you know, windows, any kind of conservation-minded renovations. We we've been doing we have a green loan fund that we've also started that we were doing kind of conservation-minded stuff before I guess it became a little more trendy. So in 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 all we have a couple of loan funds that's prim- that are primarily for what we call community-controlled housing. So buildings that either one of these nonprofits owns and manages or sometimes they're limited equity co-ops, the tenants have come together and and purchased their building or they own it and have one of the other groups manage it for them. I think to this date we've made over $4 million in loans to Bronx Affordable Housing. What are some of the uh, problems that these buildings have that you deal with? Well, part, part of it is just that they're old. A lot of the buildings are aging, and you've got you know old plumbing and electrical systems. And, and uh, another big issue is lead paint. Another big issue recently has been with um, kind of the rise, the, you know, the real estate market that's taken off. You know, now it's kind of come more into check outside of New York. It's still New York is still in the midst of a hot real estate market. Some of the new owners that are buying buildings are just paying so much money for them that they're operating their buildings at a loss. That's part of their strategy. They are backed by really deep pockets, and they're thinking in the long term, the rents are going to go up, and we're going to make more and more money off these buildings in the future. But in the short term, you know, you're trying to run a building in a deficit. How are you going to do it? You're going to cut back on services. So that's another issue we've kind of organized around is looking at buildings that are in disrepair where landlords are cutting back on services, partly because of the high price that they paid for the building. Since the rents that people are paying now don't kind of justify what the price that they paid, they got to, they've got to cut back on certain costs. And usually the easiest thing for them to cut back on is making repairs to apartments or providing, you know, basic services. And one of the things we've done, a uh, research project we've done is we've looked at every single apartment building in the Bronx that has at least six apartments and kind of done some research to see how many housing code violations they have and how many of them are recent, and what kind of class they are. Are they more serious ones? And whether or not they owe the city back taxes or uh, other liens. And we've kind of combined all that information into a scoring system. And then what we've done with that for buildings that score really high, we will contact the lender, the bank that has the mortgage on the property, and say, look, you know that you have the financing on this building and it looks like it's in pretty poor condition. And, you know, as this is one of your assets, you might want to go out and take a look, send your inspectors out to this building, and then contact the owner and encourage them to make the repairs or pay off this city lien before things get into worse shape. And that's been one of our more recent projects we've been working on. This is Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org. I'm Nora Flaherty. Ahead this morning on Cityscape, we'll look at Alzheimer's disease and the toll it's taking on older New Yorkers. Cityscape with George Bodarchy this morning at 7.30 on WFUV. My guest today on Fordham Conversations is Gregory Lobo-Jost. He's the deputy director of the University Neighborhood Housing Program. That's an organization that advocates and makes loans for decent, affordable housing in the area that surrounds Fordham University. 
In a moment, we'll get to know the area a little better. But first, let's hear the conclusion of my conversation with Gregory Lobo-Jost. Just moving even beyond uh, the Bronx, what, in your view, are the major issues facing New Yorkers in terms of housing? It's it's two. There, there's two big issues. I mean, the, the first one is kind of more immediate, and that's affordability. It's a tight housing market. The what they call the vacancy rate, the number of apartments that that are that are vacant, is at I think at an all time low. Definitely in the Bronx, I guess because the rents are lower, the the vacancy rate in the Bronx is the lowest in the city, which has never happened before. There's such a demand for housing that the owners are able to charge more. They're able to raise the rents you know, within the legal confines, there's, but they're still able to, the rents keep going up and incomes are not going up, especially for the lower end workers in New York. So you've got stagnating wages and you've got rising rents and people who are already paying 50% of their income on rent, which is typical in the Bronx. And, you know, what, where is that going to go? Are they going to be able to pay more of their income on rent unless their wages go up? I mean, it's it's a tricky situation. What's who's going to give in first? I mean, are are the, are the landlords going to be able to collect higher rents, or the other thing is more people are going to double up, and you know that's not without consequences. People people double up. It takes more of a toll on a building. Some of the apartments have been illegally subdivided, and that's led that that's led to even fatal situations. There was a fire in the in the Northwest Bronx um, about a year and a half ago where a firefighter jumped to his death because he was in in a room that had been illegally subdivided, and so he couldn't get access to the fire escape. So he ended up jumping and he died. So that's kind of more of an extreme example, but, you know, this this is the type of thing that that is going on. People are dividing up the apartments so that they can afford to rent them. The other side of it is, is, you know, the buildings are getting getting older and older, and whether or not they're going to withstand the test of time you know, we don't know. I mean, if a building is already close to 100 years old, which a lot of them are getting to that point, you know, how much can you do kind of the basic, you know, everyday repairs? Is is the building going to hold up? And there's some people that think that that this is going to be a big issue in the coming years where parts, walls and buildings will just start falling down. That's kind of looking ahead a little bit farther. That's going to be a big issue as well. But right now, the big issue is affordability. People talk a lot about the middle class not being able to afford New York City, but it's not just the middle class. It's kind of the working class, working poor people that are also having a really tough time right now. What are some of your projections if things don't change, and what do you suggest should change? There, There's a plausible scenario that if, if nothing is done, uh, New York City is going to become one of those cities where unless you live specifically in subsidized housing, you're going to have to make a lot of money to live here. And that's not really a viable option for New York, especially, you know, home to immigrants. This is where people come. And if they can't afford an apartment here, unless they're not getting into subsidized housing when they first arrive. So that's going to threaten kind of the, the historical place of New York City. And then on a more practical level, are we going to have enough workers to do all of the service industry jobs? And, you know, those are... Those are issues you see in kind of more like resort areas. But if if New York is kind of the exception to the rule where everything keeps on getting more and more expensive in terms of housing costs, you know, that's going to be an issue, too. Where are the working poor going to be able to live in New York City? So what we're really looking to do is how do we keep rents down from our side of it? Obviously, we're 
being a housing group, we're not going we're not in the position to work on uh, getting wages to increase. So let's look at the rents. Why are they? Why do they keep going up? You know, and there's a few reasons. Operating costs are way up. So things like you know, as we all know, fuel costs are really high. Insurance is really high. We've been working on another issue: water and sewer rates keep going up. If operating costs go up every year such to such an extreme, the group that decides how much rents go up for all the tenants, the Rent Guidelines Board, is going to look on that and say, look, rents need to go up because owner's costs keep going up. And so that that will lead to a greater likelihood that they're going to improve larger rent hikes, which is obviously a bad thing for all the renters. So we've been working on on trying to keep some of these operating costs down, like talking to people at the city and other other groups that are working on these issues to figure out ways to keep some of these costs down. Because in the end, all the operating costs get passed on to the tenants and higher rents. And then, you know, kind of more specifically in terms of the the ways that the rent laws work, landlords can also take uh, what they call a major capital increase. If the landlord thinks, well, you're, you know, you're, you could be paying more in rent. They could decide that they're going to go in and do some work in your apartment and pass on a percentage of those costs to the tenant. And while a lot of times that's legitimate, there have been cases of where you know some of the claims have been exa- greatly exaggerated, and, and this has been documented by some some journalists. And uh, and so you know we're we're calling that there needs to be more oversight on that as well. And I should stop you here and say yeah. these are all conditions that affect only stabilized apartments, right? Right. This is just for rent-stabilized apartments. If you live in a building that has fewer than six rental apartments, you're not protected by any of these kind of rent laws. Are all apartments stabilized that if are more than six units? Most of them are, unless they bec- they can become destabilized if they go if the rent goes over two thousand dollars a month, and it goes vacant. Or if it goes over $2,000 a month and they check your income and you make over $175,000 a year for two consecutive years. Then once, once basically they call that like the luxury vacancy decontrol and, and then the owner can charge you whatever they like. And that's not happening in the Bronx, but one thing that is, it's indirectly affecting the Bronx because as neighborhoods, primarily I guess in, in, in Harlem, East Harlem and Brooklyn and, um, and I guess even parts of Queens, where that's happening, the people that were living there can no longer afford to live there. And, and that's putting more pressure on the lower income people to move out of those neighborhoods and come to places like the Bronx, which has put this increased demand on the lower rents that are up here. And that's led to rise higher rents up here. But one of the other programs that, that we've kind of helped participate in is, is New York City as couple groups, including the city and, and some foundations and banks, have come together and put together an acquisition loan fund to help local nonprofits purchase buildings, be able to compete with some of the for-profit investors. So we're working with one of our neighborhood partners, Ford and Bedford Housing Corporation, to um, we're able to purchase six buildings in the neighborhood that are well-run, decent, nice buildings that have relatively r- low rents. And the owner of these buildings, if he had sold them to, you know, any investor, could be a foreign investor, anybody, one of these groups, any of these groups that are out buying buildings right now, they would have instantly looked at it and said, wow, this building has a lot of what they call upside potential. And we can, you know, try to get as many people to move out. We can send, you know, eviction notices to people. There's different like kind of harassment techniques to get people to leave 
and then they can raise the rents a little bit more and do these ma- major capital improvements and raise the rents even more and that would that's just kind of the start of it and then as as you know you get your right people in there that they want they're trying to get all the low income folks out who will have very few other places to go and instantly this building that was kind of a source of affordable housing not through any subsidy program but just by the fact that they had low rents is no longer affordable to kind of your your typical kind of working class New Yorker or Bronxite resident. So this acquisition loan fund is helping, you know, on a small scale, but it, you know, still it's something, helping to preserve the affordability of some of the local housing stock. How does the stuff that you're talking about in the Bronx, how does it affect all New Yorkers? I think if we want to m- keep New York City as kind of this diverse kind of vibrant city that it is, which I think New York prides itself on being, we need to really look at keeping it affordable for for all different levels of of New Yorkers with you know all New Yorkers with all different levels of incomes and backgrounds. And as things get less and less affordable, I think the the viability of New York City continuing in in this role that it's played is is threatened and you know, we need to keep it as a decent place to live for people who are, you know, working at the places that kind of middle income and upper income people are going. If you're, you know, the whole economy of the city depends on workers at all different levels. And if they don't have a decent place to live, that's going to threaten some of the uh, the viability of New York. Plus, I think it's just quality of life for people of different incomes. Allowing people who work in the city to to live in the city, I think, is important. And from an environmental standpoint, too, keeping commuting times low, as long as someone can get to their job on the subway, there needs to be places in the city where where folks can work and live. Well, Gregory Lobo-Jost, thanks so much. You're welcome. That was Gregory Lobo-Jost. He's the deputy director of the University Neighborhood Housing Program. Their website, if you'd like to learn more about them, is unhp.org. This is Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org. I'm Nora Flaherty. We'll close the show today by taking a little audio walk up one of the Northwest Bronx's main drags, Fordham Road. I recorded this sound on a summary late afternoon earlier this week. It features some of the diversity that Gregory Lobo just mentioned in our interview, and it also features snow cone vendors. If you listen carefully, you can hear the sound it makes when they scrape up the ice.
Well, I always felt the best way to get to know a neighborhood was to take a nice walk through it. From WFUV, this has been Fordham Conversations. The show is also now available as a podcast. If you're interested in subscribing or if you're just looking for some more information, click on podcast on our homepage, wfuv.org. You can also listen online in our audio archives. Next week on the show, we'll talk about West Indians in the Bronx with my guest, Natasha Lightfoot. I'm Nora Flaherty. Cityscape is next. Thanks for listening and have a fabulous weekend. This is WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org.